Uh, to begin this morning, I'm just going to read from an article that appeared in the Christian Post, and it was authored by Michael Grabowski. And the article was published in May of 2018, and the title is, Christians Must Unhitch the Old Testament from Their Faith, says Andy Stanley. North Point Community Church Senior Pastor Andy Stanley has stated that Christians need to unhitch the Old Testament from their faith. In the final part of a recent sermon series, Stanley explained that while he believes that the Old Testament is divinely inspired, it should not be the go-to source regarding any behavior in the church. And to justify this, Stanley preached last month about Acts 15, which described how the early church decided that Gentile converts did not need to strictly observe Jewish law to become Christians. In the sermon, Stanley said, First century church leaders unhitched the church from the worldview, value system, and regulations of the Jewish scriptures. Peter, James, Paul elected to unhitch their Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures, and my friends, we must as well. Stanley argued that it had to be done for the same reason the church in Acts 15 did so, which was so that we must not make it difficult for those Gentiles who are turning to God. For Stanley, the difficulty lay with the Old Testament and his concern that many Christians are turning away from the faith because of certain passages in the Hebrew Bible. Stanley argued that the early church showed that there was a need to move past the Old Testament for the sake of Gentile believers and that the resurrection of Jesus was enough. Stanley acknowledged that his comments may be considered a little disturbing to some, but then added that for many it is liberating. He went on to say, It is liberating for men and women who are drawn to the simple message that God loves you so much he sent his son to pave the way to a relationship with you. It's liberating for people who need and understand grace, who need and understand forgiveness. And it's liberating for people who find it virtually impossible to embrace the dynamic, the worldview, and the value system depicted in the story of ancient Israel. Stanley's sermon was the third part of a series titled Aftermath, in which the pastor was trying to appeal to individuals who left Christianity over what they were taught the Bible said about certain things. North Point Community Church's website introduced the sermon series this way. If you were raised on a version of Christianity that relied on the Bible as the foundation of faith, a version that was eventually dismantled by academia and the realities of life, maybe it's time for you to change your mind about Jesus. Maybe it's time for you to consider the version of Christianity that relies on the event of the resurrection of Jesus as its foundation. If you gave up your faith because of something about or in the Bible, maybe you gave up unnecessarily. End quote. Well, you, you can imagine that this sermon uh, caused quite a bit of uh, controversy and drew a lot of attention since Stanley is an evangelical celebrity pastor and author. And he received a lot of criticism, and, and I think rightly so. But perhaps a neglect of the Old Testament scriptures in the wider church shows that for many pastors and congregations, they have already unhitched. They just never came out and said it publicly. And when you look at the reasoning, they always defend their position based on their pure motives. They don't want unbelievers to be put off by certain passages in the Old Testament. They say Christians are leaving the church because of their problems with the Old Testament. And Stanley argues that this strategy of unhitching from the Old Testament, it results in gains for the church. Well, the 
prophet Nahum would uh, definitely be one of the books that these folks would point to as, as a reason to unhitch from the Old Testament. It proclaims uh, the Lord's vengeance and his wrath uh, that's about to be unleashed on Nineveh. And this hurts the ears of those who only want to hear of God's love to the exclusion of his other attributes. But we must reject the line of thinking that the Old Testament can be discarded or de-emphasized with no effect to our faith as Christians. Today we'll consider the opening verses of Nahum, a prophet's vision from the Lord um, depicting him as a jealous judge and a good God who hasn't forgotten his people. So turn in your Bibles to Nahum chapter 1. Nahum chapter 1. I'll give you some time to find it. We're not in Nahum very... (laughs) (laughs) In the Minor Prophets, Jonah, Micah, Nahum... Page is still rustling, so I'll give you time. (laughs) So Nahum chapter 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 8. The Oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. So in these opening verses of Nahum, we're going to uh, recognize two attributes of God that comfort his people. These two attributes of God that comfort his people. Number one, we'll see God's jealousy comforts his people because it assures that his enemies will be punished. And number two, we'll see that God's goodness comforts his people because it assures that they will be saved from his wrath. Verse one is just an an introduction. It's like a superscription to the book. And first of all, we see that it is an oracle or literally burden of Nineveh. And what a burden it is. God's wrath is hanging over their heads, getting ready to burst out in an overwhelming flood, as it says down in verse eight. You're familiar with Nineveh from the um, prophecy of Jonah. Uh, it was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And Jonah, the reluctant prophet, uh, finally preaches a message of God's judgment in Nineveh. 
and the people repent. Um, it's an amazing sermon. It's one sentence long, and, and the people repent. Um, but the repentance would not be a lasting repentance. In this sequel to Jonah, we have Nahum's oracle uh, prophesying God's impending judgment once again, and this time Nineveh would not repent, resulting in its destruction at the hands of Babylon. Now, sequels are notoriously disappointing, but uh, I think Jonah would have liked this, <laughs> this sequel because you remember at the end of Jonah, he's kind of sulking, sulking because the Lord spared Nineveh. He saved them, and he wanted to see God's judgment fall. And so he didn't get to see it in his lifetime, but um, finally uh, God will destroy the Assyrian Empire and its capital, Nineveh. And the setting of this oracle is somewhere between the fall of Thebes, which occurred in 1663 BC. That's, we know that because it's mentioned in chapter 3. And then the fall of Nineveh that was predicted by Nahum actually occurred in 612 BC. So that's kind of the time period we're talking about. And this is an oracle delivered as a book from God's prophet Nahum. And the Bible says nothing more about this man, Nahum, or the city he comes from, Elkosh, other than these bare facts in the introduction. Nahum's name uh, can be translated as comfort or, or compassion, and his prophecy certainly would have been a comfort um, to Judah. They're under Assyrian oppression. Um, Assyria was notorious for its cruelty to its defeated captives. Um, Reliefs that have been discovered by archaeologists show Assyrian celebration of bodies impaled on sticks, tongues being cut out, dismembered bodies, and severed heads being used as decoration. Um, But John Calvin suggests that their greatest sin was the oppression of God's people, and his jealousy roused the Lord to avenge his people. So Nahum's prophecy is a comfort. Uh, not just to Judah, but to all who put their trust in the Lord and desire to see his enemies defeated. The book then opens up in in verses 2 through 8 with a hymn about the Lord, the divine warrior who is a jealous God, who avenges himself and his people by unleashing wrath on his enemies. And the truths of this hymn are not limited by time or space, and they provide the theological context for the book as a whole. These we know God is unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the, what this uh, passage tells us about God's character is true today. And verses 2 through 6 explain how God's jealousy moves him to avenge himself, and it assures that his enemies will be punished. The hymn opens in verse 2 by saying, A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Nahum begins this hymn by highlighting an attribute of the Lord, the covenant God of Israel, that is often de-emphasized, and that's his jealousy. Why is God's jealousy an attribute that we don't talk about often? Well, we think of it as generally a negative attribute. In people, it is. Uh, jealousy is, is not a good thing, but it is a perfect attribute of the Lord. He is rightfully jealous. He deserves all glory, all worship, all praise, and so it is right for God to be jealous of his own glory. Isaiah 42, 8 
says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. And that's bad news for the idolatrous Assyrians. Um, it's bad news for anyone who puts their trust in anything but the Lord, who erects idols in their heart or bows down to them. Uh, and not only is he jealous for his own glory, but he is jealous for his people Israel. Nothing was to, be, was to come between Israel and the Lord um, or their pure worship of God. The Bible uses the marriage metaphor for the Lord and Israel since it parallels the covenant relationship between a man and his wife. And that relationship is to be guarded jealously uh, to the exclusion of all outside parties. Not only is he jealous, but he takes vengeance on his enemies. And while they may appear to be succeeding, God's enemies, certainly Assyria was the world power of the day, God is reserving wrath for his enemies, and it will break out against them at the appointed time. Israel had been conquered by Assyria, and they had no power of their own to overthrow um, the oppressors. Their only hope was that the Lord had not forgotten them. And you can see why this message would have been such a comfort to them. In only a few short years, this world power was overthrown and they've been relegated to the dustbin of history. You don't hear about Assyria anymore. They were on the scene for a time. God used them actually to um, judge Israel in their idolatry. And then he uh, wasn't done with Assyria. He, um, they're defeated at the hands of Babylon. Well, how is this a comfort to us today? We understand how it would be a comfort to Judah at that time. Well, as believers, we can trust that the Lord will avenge himself and us when we are persecuted for the sake of Jesus Christ and his gospel. Nothing escapes his notice, and just punishment is assured for his enemies. So when we feel the sting of persecution, we can be comforted knowing the Lord will take up our cause and take vengeance on his enemies. And I believe that texts like this will become more and more precious to us as we see the church come under persecution and hostility in our country. Hostility towards Christ and uh, and us. The weapons of our warfare are spiritual, as Paul tells us, and we go forward with the gospel, assured of Christ's power and his presence. Nahum encourages us as we understand that no sin committed escapes the Lord's notice. He will avenge his people. So be comforted. Vengeance is the domain of God. So Paul command, commands us in Romans 12, 19, 21, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that's the difference between divine vengeance and human vengeance. Human vengeance leads to the evils of sinful anger and bitterness and injustice. Uh, We become angry and vindictive when we're offended. Often we become angry at others, not because God's honor has been attacked, but because our own pride has been bruised. Only the Lord is perfectly just and able to wield the sword of vengeance righteously. His wrath is never out of proportion or poured out recklessly. He always does right. 
And the first part of verse 3 tells us the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So the rebel may think that because he is not immediately struck down in his sin that the Lord does not notice or perhaps will not judge at all. I think it's a symptom of our church today that, you know, often we don't take sin seriously. Uh, We don't see it as a serious thing. We think the Lord is just overlooking it. And this is one of Satan's greatest lies that keeps men and women entangled in sin. The lie goes like this. God is a God of love. He does not punish. He never judges. God expects people to sin and simply overlooks our sin, much as would a lenient and permissive grandfather. So don't get too alarmed about sin. You can see that there's a kernel of truth in this lie of Satan. God is indeed a God of love, but he is also holy, as we were reminded of a couple weeks ago. And his holiness demands that sin be punished. One author puts it this way. It is an error and sometimes a fatal one to misinterpret God's patience as God's indulgence. God mercifully withholds chastisement as he calls us to repentance. But Satan tempts us to regard withheld punishment as as God's lack of concern for our sin. We are then emboldened to continue in sin. Romans 2, 4 says, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? The Holy Spirit displays God's goodness to us and directs us to repent. Satan tells us that God's goodness is evidence that he won't punish sin, and therefore we don't need to repent. Puritan Thomas Brooks cautions that we should be most alarmed over our spiritual health when we can break God's laws and not sense God's holy displeasure with us. Brooks wrote, When God lets the way to hell be a smooth and pleasant way, it is a dreadful sign that God's indignation is a dreadful sign of God's indignation against a man, a token of his rejection, and that God doth not intend good unto him. Sin is serious, and um, we should be concerned if we're able to sin without any um, sense of God's displeasure at our sin. Nahum tells us that the Lord is patient and powerful. He is full of wrath towards his enemies, but works on his own sovereign timetable. No one can predict when his patience will run out and judgment will come. But we can be certain that based on this text, judgment is assured and not a single person escapes his, just, his justice. Nobody is escaping his notice. All sin must be punished. And then the second half of verse 3 says, In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. So here we have the entrance of the Lord as a divine warrior. He is in control over all the elements of his creation. And in this vivid imagery, he rides the storm clouds into battle. The fearful appearance of an approaching storm with its flashes of lightning and destructive winds call to mind the sudden and unpredictable outpouring of God's wrath. This imagery is a direct rebuke to Baal worship. Uh, Canaanites and unfaithful Israel often fell into this worship of Baal. And Baal 
was said to be the cloud rider in control of the weather and war, but it is the Lord who rules creation and the elements. And with this divine warrior making his appearance, suddenly nature reacts in some interesting ways. It's described in verses 4 and 5. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. So we understand that nature is subject to its creator. When the Lord, the divine warrior, makes war, the structure of the earth is shaken, and the natural order is overturned. The rebuking uh, of the sea and making it dry recalls the the Red Sea crossing uh, where the Lord delivered his people and drowned the army of Pharaoh. A nation of slaves with no army were delivered from the most powerful kingdom on earth by the miraculous intervention of their Lord. And these were words of comfort to Israel who were once again subject to a pagan world power. They needed to remember, they needed to be recalled. They needed to recall what what the Lord had done, how he had delivered them, that he is able to deliver them again. Following this description of God in the previous verses, Nahum provides some rhetorical questions in verse 6. And those two questions are, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure his burning anger? Those who put their trust in this world or the things of this world will be disappointed. At the appearance of the Lord, creation breaks apart. We're uh, amused at the ancient mythology that gives rise to false gods like Baal, but man is is busy building altars to his own earthly earthly gods, building a false sense of safety. A man's riches, fame, power, influence, none of these modern-day idols that we raise up will be of any use on the day of God's wrath. And based on the descriptions in these these verses, there is no one who can withstand um, the wrath of God. These questions and their obvious answers remove any hope for those who think they have a standing before God. However, just in case there are some holdouts who think they will escape, Nahum provides the following vivid picture of God's wrath in action. His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. This imagery uh, brings to mind earthquakes and volcanoes, two terrifying natural phenomena at the Lord's disposal should he choose to use use them as instruments of his wrath. The cup of God's wrath filled with liquid fire being poured out on his enemies provides a horrible, horrible picture of what awaits his enemies. And the way God makes war on his enemies is in stark contrast to man's wars. We only need to look at our, our recent past in Afghanistan. The United States waged uh, a 20-year war, uh, the only world superpower against a vastly weaker foe, a small landlocked country on the other side of the world. Somewhere between two and three trillion dollars was spent by the United States on the war. It's estimated that 241,000 people died in the war, most of those Afghans. 2,442 U.S. soldiers killed and about 4,000 U.S. contractors also died in the war. 
And in the end, the United States made a chaotic withdrawal with many scratching their heads as to what was accomplished in the end. Or you can look to uh, Russia and Ukraine in the headlines right now. It is hard to make war. Moving men and material and the resistance from opposing forces and sanctions from other nations, world markets sway back and forth and prices are driven up uh, because of supplies of goods being cut off and the human toll is heartbreaking. But God is not constrained by any of these human obstacles. When he makes war, it is holy and just and there is no one that can stand in his way. His power is so great that victory is immediate and there is no drain on his infinite resources. As we consider this truth and this picture of God as the divine warrior, it makes his patience and slowness to wrath even more amazing. Why does he hold back? That brings us to the second attribute of God in verses 7 and 8 that comfort his people. God's goodness comforts us because it assures us that we will be saved from his wrath. Look at verse 7 and 8. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. The simplicity of the Hebrew is, is beautiful and straightforward. Tov Yahweh, good Lord. This simple statement is the hinge on which the psalm turns. It explains what comes before. An all-knowing, all-powerful, holy God that is good must judge evil and avenge his name and his people. Would a good God ignore the cries for justice from his persecuted people? Would a holy God who allows rebels to go unpunished be good? No. It's impossible. Then what hope do any of us have since all have sinned and fall short of God's glory? Let's consider what comes after the declaration that the Lord is good. The Lord knows those who belong to him, and he covers them in the day of his wrath. His own person is the refuge. He protects his own from his wrath. There's an exegetical question to be considered in verses 7 and 8, and it has to do with the overflowing flood. Does it go with the line above? He knows those who take refuge in him in an overflowing flood, or the line after? With an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of his adversaries. While it can be read with both lines, and I agree with commentators that see this as the best reading, it's part of the rich poetry of this hymn. It goes with what's before and it goes with what's after. The flood will destroy his enemies, but he will shelter his own to prevent them from being swept away in the waters of his wrath. In verse 8, we see that man's devices will utterly fail in the face of God's wrath. His retreat into darkness will not provide any cover from this onslaught. This brings to mind the words of Paul in Romans 1, 21 through 25. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. 
professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. God's enemies are blind to the fact that even the darkness they retreat into is an instrument of God's wrath. I'm thankful to... um, be in a church that values the whole Bible. What the Old Testament tells us about the character of God is, is indispensable. We cannot unhitch from this. There's nothing to be gained from unhitching to, from the Old Testament. And as we've seen in, in Nahum, the Old Testament is God's divine revelation of himself and his redemptive plan. We, we avoid it at our own peril. Cutting ourselves off from it is... Uh, only uh, going to result in loss. Nahum and the other Old Testament prophets reveal attributes of our God that result in comfort for his people. Nahum tells us that God's jealous wrath is on display in this oracle, and those who would seek to make God more palatable to unbelievers by minimizing his jealousy and judgment on sin are on a fool's errand. God's justice was on full display at Calvary. We were hidden in the stronghold of Jesus Christ when the overwhelming flood of God's wrath was absorbed by his son. Praise God for that. When the hard sayings and the hard passages of the Bible are minimized or simply not preached, we ignore the only means the Lord has given to save his elect, the preaching of his word. So hold fast to these truths and May God bless us through uh, faithfulness to his word. Do you guys have any questions or or comments before we close in prayer? Yes, Ethan. So, just go back to the jealousy piece. So I guess it is pretty much impossible for us to have righteous jealousy. I mean, pretty much with man, does not always be considered sinful? Is that what you're going to say? Or or can we extrapolate that? I think there is a healthy jealousy over so I talked about the marriage metaphor I think there's a healthy jealousy over a spouse but it is um, it's a fine line because I think jealousy easily um, can it's it's like anger there is a righteous anger but whenever I feel angry I'm uh, suspicious of my own heart because so so rarely is my anger ever righteous usually I'm angry about sinfully angry so i would say jealousy is similar i think there's a good jealousy over a spouse but um can easily um, cross over into sin i would say that so um but yeah it, it, it normally is considered a negative like anger um but i think there are exceptions to it yeah hey, yes Right. Is the 
folks don't want to understand because of sin how bad the bad news is. Yeah. Which means we can never understand how good the good news right. is. Right. Right. So then there's this attempt to humanize God yeah. in our estimation of Him instead of realizing how in fact He's humanized Himself yeah. in the sense of the incarnate Jesus Christ. Yeah. To take care of that bad news. Right. And to the degree that we don't see that that First Corinthians promise. Yeah, I think it places the emphasis in the wrong place too. Like it's we're not talking about the health of the church. Like we we grow in health as we understand the character of God revealed in the Old Testament, but it's focused on the world. Like how can we? It's the seeker sensitive type motivation um how how do we make it more palatable to them while we've got to kind of sideline these things because they're they're uncomfortable to talk about but it's really an incomplete gospel at best a false gospel at worst so yeah that's a good point anyone else yes matt you probably covered this in the introduction but i missed it but um Nahum's oracle is about Nineveh yeah it's a good question I think it does address both but um, yeah it, it I think the main audience is Nineveh but there's there's two yeah Judah is definitely addressed and considered part of the the audience for for Nahum if you read through it, it does speak to, to Judah. They were not innocent in all of this. Assyria came and conquered them because of their sin and idolatry. Um, so, yeah, they're both addressed in the, in the oracle. Well, good. Well, our time is up. I'm going to close in prayer and then let you all go. Father, we thank you that uh, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are... God from everlasting to everlasting and um, we praise you for your character revealed in Nahum and the comfort it brings us that uh, your enemies did not go unpunished Um, Lord we pray for uh, those who would do us harm Lord we seek to do good to our enemies Lord to um, plead with them to repent Um, and then we rest in your, your good plan, your sovereign plan, uh, whether that is to save our enemies or to bring uh, judgment one day. Lord, that is your, um, your purview. Uh, we are simply um, your servants, Lord, and so help us to be uh, faithful uh, to you today. Bless us as we go into the service to come. Bless the preaching of your word and the singing and praying and reading of scripture. Lord, may it edify us to serve you this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. I wanted to apologize.